0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church, and now here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If if any of you saw the sermon preview video this week, which we sent out on the app and was also on Facebook? I had a chance to feature our local Spirit Lake High School football team, and I also had a chance to interview some of the crosswinds players that were on the, on the team, you know, football is a really tough sport. If you're a player, there is a lot of pressure on you in the game. I mean, you have to know your plays. You have to be able to execute your plays. You cannot crack under pressure because if you crack under pressure, it can throw everything off. I mean, you can end up losing a game because you may not be able to handle the stress. Of those moments. But folks, it's not just football players that are under pressure. Isn't it true that often we are under pressure as well? Isn't it true that when we're under pressure, it's easy to crack, it's easy to fail, it's easy to make mistakes? Well, if you're a person who experiences pressure and sometimes find yourself cracking and failing and sinning under mistakes, well this will be a good message for you. Because today, we're going to find that in First Samuel chapter 27, this is a time where David ends up under a ton of pressure. David ends up in stress. David ends up in depression, and he cracks. He doesn't just crack. He actually turns his back on God, and he wanders away from God. Now, if you've been with us for earlier studies in this series, you know David is a really... Really impressive guy. I mean, he has some amazing abilities. Like his ability with a sling and a stone, I mean, second to none. Kicking in Goliath out with just one shot. His ability in war is amazing. Whenever he is involved in a battle with the Philistines, the Israelites always win. David is also a guy of amazing character. We've seen so far twice that even though he could have taken Saul's life, he chose to spare Saul's life and to honor the king, not kill the king. Even though that very same king is constantly trying to take his life, constantly trying to to, ch- to chase him and, and ruin him. In fact, we saw last week that he said at the end of the chapter that he would trust his life into God's hands to save him. He wasn't going to trust his life in man's hands to save him. God would be the one who would rescue him, he said, from all of his troubles. So David is this like, sort of amazing superhero kind of a guy. But if you've been with us for the long haul in this study, you know David also has a darker side that we've seen creep up from time to time. Remember when David first became a marked man by Saul? Saul went public with his desire to execute him and finish him off. David sort of flipped out under the stress. He started trusting in Goliath's sword to save him. He went to the Philistines for protection. And then he bold-faced lied to Ahimelech, the high priest. He sort of pretty, messed up, pretty much messed up under pressure. He's not a perfect guy. We've also seen that David has a little bit of a temper tantrum. Remember when Nabal insulted him and irritated him? He was so angry, he said, I'm going to kill Nabal, and I'm going to kill all the males in his household. I mean, that sounds like a little bit overdone for an insult. Thankfully, Abigail, Nabal's wife, intercepted him. Abigail, Nabal's wife, stopped him. But the truth is, we've learned that David sometimes lets his emotions get the better of him. Sometimes his emotional world gets him into trouble. And today, as we get into 1 Samuel chapter 27, we're going to find that this is not one of David's finest moments. That David, when he gets under pressure, when he finally gets completely exhausted, he sort of cracks. He turns away from God and decides he's going to rely on his own strategies to save him instead of God's word to save him. Now, by the way, this is not because God has been unfaithful to him in any way. God has been completely faithful to him. God has constantly protected him. You've seen that if you've been here for a while. The last nine chapters, that is always the story. Saul goes after David, and God rescues David. It's a cycle. But what it is at this point, after years of running from Saul, constantly not having a place that he could stay the same place one night after the other, Constantly being under stress. He is worn down. He is exhausted. He is overwhelmed. Anybody ever been in those positions? Worn down, exhausted, overwhelmed? Just four of us? I think it's like all of us have been there. And if you know what that position is like, that is the position that David is in in this moment. And he sort of says, as we're going to see, you know, I'm done trusting God to save me. I'm done hanging out in Israel. I've got my own plan. I'm going to do my own thing to save myself. And what we're going to find out is when he makes his own plans, he does his own thing. At first, it looks like it works. But ultimately, it ends up changing his character. It blings him to places he never wanted to go. He starts doing things he never wanted to do, and ultimately he ends up trapped, trapped by his own sin. And the only one who can save him at that point is God in his grace and mercy. Now, I think that's a pattern that probably a lot of us have followed. Isn't it true? Wondered from God, decided to do things our own way, find our character changing, getting worse, getting darker, getting selfish, getting ruthless... And finally, we're trapped. So if you've been in that cycle, you'll understand David in this same cycle today. Now, I'm going to build this um, message around this simple question. You know, like, what happens if I wander from God? Because that's what David is doing in this chapter. This is one of the few chapters in 1 Samuel that does not mention God. Because at this point, David doesn't want anything to do with God. He's relying on himself. And we're going to see what happens to David and also what can happen to us when we go the same way. It begins with this. The first thing we learn is I will start trusting in my wisdom instead of God's word. That's pretty normal. Verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel and I shall escape out of his hand. Now, we need to understand where we left off last week and where we're starting this week because they are very different positions. If you were here last week when chapter 26 ended, it was one of David's finest hours. David had the opportunity to kill Saul a second time, and he chose not to. Abishai, David's soldier, who was with him right there next to Saul as he slept, he said, I could just take that spear out of the ground, move it a few inches, and Saul's life would be gone. Your trouble would be over. And David said, no, we spare his life. We will not put our hand out against the Lord's anointed. In fact, David was a better protector of Saul's life that night than Saul's own commander in his army, Abner. Incredible godly man. And as I said earlier, Saul ends by saying, God rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. I'm not going to look for Saul to save me. I'm going to trust in God to save me. I'm going to do the right thing. And I'm going to, in faith, trust that God will reward me. Trust that God will save me. I mean, this is really a spiritual high point for him. Imagine saying those, those words. But here as we... Turn the page. We come to the next chapter. I don't know how long it was from the end of chapter 26 to the beginning of chapter 27, but everything now is heading in the opposite direction. David is down in the dumps. David is depressed. David is overwhelmed. Listen to his words. He says, It's only going to be a matter of time until I will perish by the hands of Saul. Saul. The key thing to understand this is, I think, the word perish. Now, in the English, that doesn't mean much to us. But in Hebrew, the word he uses is a rather rare word. It's only used three times in the books of Samuel. And it is a word that describes God's judgment on a king of Israel that would choose to leave the Lord. How God would bring his wrath on them and just wipe them off the face of the earth. This is what David pictures happening to him from King Saul. One day, he's going to completely wipe me out and every last trace of me will be gone. Do you understand? This is giving us a picture of David's emotional world. He's really at the bottom at this point. Now, what's happened? He has really, in one sense, no reason to be depressed. God has rescued his life over a dozen times in the nine chapters before this. Why is he forgetting this? What has happened with David during this time? And I'll give you later on my guess as to why he's gone this way. He's got his eyes off of God's faithfulness to him. And all he can see are the problems in front of him. He's sort of lost perspective. Anybody else ever done that? You get so overwhelmed that all you see is the problems that are in front of you rather than the faithfulness that God has given to you. Yeah, you got one person. Nobody else here, right? I think all of us have been there. This is what David has done. He's lost perspective. And we forget the constant amount of stress that David was under. Remember this from 1 Samuel 23, verse 14? We read that Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. Every single day for years, David has been on the run. We think of this like maybe every few months. Every day, understand the stress, the darkness, the difficulty in his world. He says, the only way that I'm ever going to be able to escape, he says, is if I leave the land of Israel if I cross over to the enemy, if I start working with the Philistines instead of fighting the Philistines, that's a moment of desperation. Now, you've been with us before. We know the last time he went over to the Philistines, he almost died. He was quickly captured. He was chained to the city gates. We saw that. And it was only by him pretending to be insane that they ever let him go. So this is a Hail Mary pass on his part to say I have to get to the Philistines because I am so exhausted and so worn out of running away from Saul. So he is very convinced this is the only way to relieve his stress. He is desperate. He also knows this is going to be a little bit disobedient. Last time he ran away from the land of Israel, the prophet Gad told him to return and to stay in Israel. He knows he's supposed to stay there, but he's going to be disobedient and leave. Now, this is a a little point I put in here for you. David's spiral into depression and sin began when he listened to the negative self-talk in his heart. This is how the verse begins. David said in his heart, surely I will perish. Surely Saul will get me. Surely Saul will destroy me. What happened is David began negative self-talk in his heart and he started to listen to that negative self-talk and he started to believe that negative self-talk. Anybody else ever done that? Anybody here who has had some negative self-talk going on? started to listen to your own self-talk, started to believe your negative self-talk. And the problem with negative self-talk is it's sort of addicting, isn't it? And then after a while, you start to have a pity party for yourself. I'm never going to do anything right. I can never get anything right. This is the point where David is at. So what's the answer to the negative self-talk that David has going around his heart? Should David sit there and say, well, actually, I'm a really great guy. The world should be happy that I'm here. I'm a wonderful person. No, that's Oprah Winfrey. The answer is not to talk about, in his heart, about how good David is. The answer is for him to lift his eyes back up to his Savior and talk to his heart about how good God is and how good God has been to him, and he deserves none of it. Instead of focusing on the fact he's almost lost his life almost a dozen times, focus on the fact that God has saved his life over a dozen times. You see how it's a shift? Folks, we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm such a loser. I'm such a failure. I constantly screw up. And you know what? there's probably some truth to that to all of us. But what we need to do is look in the mirror and say, God is so good to me. He sent His own Son to die for me no matter what I have done in the way of sin. Jesus has forgiven it all. Jesus has taken my sin as far as the east is from the west away from me. Paul says that we are literally the most blessed beings in the entire universe through Jesus that's what gives us joy that's what gives us hope not how good we are but how good God is to us and folks we deserve absolutely none of it we need to fix our eyes on Jesus not look at ourselves in the mirror. Otherwise, we will be depressed. Now, I put this down to make sure that you had this point. Writing your outlines. The way to counter negative self-talk is not by reminding myself of how good I am, but by reminding myself how good God is to me. And if you are somebody that is struggling with negative self-talk today, please listen to that. Please do that. Focus on Jesus and not yourself. Well, the other thought is this. What brought David to this point? What brought him from this spiritual high point at the end of chapter 26 to this incredible low point and depressing point in chapter 27? Now, I don't know, but I have a theory and I'll share it with you. What we're going to find out is that David has 600 men that he has in his militia. We'll also learn in this chapter that these men have wives. These men have families. So David is responsible for about 2,000 to 3,000 people. Any of you folks work in logistics? Any of you folks work in business and you have people that work under you and you're responsible for them? Is that difficult? Is that a lot of stress when you're trying to manage people? Like try thousands of people and you're in a situation, remember, where David has been hiding literally in the desert so Saul wouldn't find him. But the Ziphites who were Israelites gave David up. He can't find any ways in the country of Israel where it is safe for him. Any place where he can get rest... And he has 2,000 to 3,000 people to take care of. David has become a major businessman who is working with business headaches, business problems constantly all day long. So on the balance, you know, in the last chapter, he's this great Christian man who's focusing on his relationship with God. But by this chapter, he's a businessman who's sort of forgotten about God's goodness to him and he's focusing on all the problems in front of him, in particular, taking care of people. Now, have we ever been there? Any of you have to manage a lot of people? Constantly having to manage a business or having to manage problems, and you're doing that so much that it's so easy to forget about God's goodness, so easy to forget about Jesus, so easy to lose sight of our Savior and our hope i know i'm a pastor i can get there and if i can get there i know you guys can get there but this is what i think brought david to this moment where he wandered away from god and figured the only way he can make his way forward is by trusting in himself and his own ingenuity it was the busyness and freneticness of his incredible busy life in managing these people now, there's another point I put in here because I want to make sure we don't forget it. Relying on myself may appear to work, but it will lead me to places I don't want to go and I will do things I never thought I would do. And that's what we're going to see happens when David tries to solve his own problems in, his own, in himself. Verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maac. King of Gath. I don't know what comes to your mind as you uh, hear those words that David went over, but they almost have a sinister ring to them, don't they? It's not like he just moved in geographical locations from one place to the other, but he went over. He switched sides he began working for the enemy. At this point, he doesn't just move to a different country, but he goes to a different source of strength in his life. He is no longer going to be relying on God. He's going to rely on himself. And incidentally, this is going to turn out for him, at least at first, very differently. Last time when he went to Gath, remember he tried to rely on Goliath's sword. That didn't work. He was quickly captured and all those things we talked about earlier. This time when he comes over, at first it seems like it was a great idea. David and his men, his 600 men, are a formidable fighting force. They are well known to the Philistines. If you've been with us for the balance of this study, you'll remember a time in the earlier chapters when the Philistines were attacking a city named Keilah. And this is the Philistine army, a large army attacking an Israelite city. And David and his men went and defended the city. And this small group of, at that time it was 400 men, defeated a major Philistine army. The Philistines have not forgotten that. They have a great deal of respect for David and his men. Look what it says here. It was in 1 Samuel 23:5. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So the idea that David and his men are now going to fight on team Philistine is something the Philistines are pretty excited about because they respect David. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, and every man with his household and David with his two wives, Ohinomim of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. Now remember prior to this, we know that David is a hero of the Israelites. He was loved by everyone, except for King Saul who was jealous of him, but he was loved by everyone. Now imagine if you were an Israelite and you hear that David has gone to the Philistines and he's now working for the enemy what would go through your mind? Traitor? Scoundrel? Edward Snowden? Right? How dare you do this? Now, folks, it's very easy to us to be highly critical of David in this moment. And I'm not saying what he did was right. It was clearly wrong. But as I wrestled with this, I sort of, Check myself and my heart. It's so easy to be critical of David, but it's sometimes takes us slowing down to understand the stress of David and what brought him to this really desperate moment. Before we're critical of people and the bad choices they make or the unwise choices they make, we need to understand people. Think of David. Remember I told you earlier, can't find any place in all of Israel to hide in safety. 2,000 to 3,000 mouths to feed. Years of constantly being on the run. You know, it's when we understand David and the stress that was going on in his shoes, we can be a little more sympathetic of the choice he made. Now, I'm not saying it was a right choice. It would clearly a wrong choice but we can at least begin with some sympathy as to why he made this desperate choice think of it this way maybe you know a friend whose wife is dying of cancer going through a really difficult time and you can come into that relationship and say oh you know the bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord which is better by far you know she'll die and she'll be with jesus isn't that wonderful well, is that true? Yes. But boy, are you unsympathetic. Boy, are you heartless. You need to understand the pain of watching a loved one die. You need to empathize with all of those trips to the hospital and the chemo treatments and the suffering and the agony. Yes! Is it better to be absent of the body? Is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far? Yes, that is true. That is our hope. But you still need to understand and empathize with the pain and the agony of someone who is going through a difficult time and a difficult process. And so I think with David, we need to be there a little bit. Understand what brought him to this desperate Hail Mary moment, even though it's not the right thing to do. And I actually put this down as an application point for us just to remember as you go into your life groups, before I criticize someone's sinful choices or their poor choices, at least walk in their shoes and have compassion so I can better understand their worlds. I said earlier that I'm convinced that this was a sinful choice by David. It was a faithless choice by David, desperate choice by David, yes, But why do I say that? The scriptures tell us on balance that God's people never find salvation away from God and they never find it outside of God's land. Look at the, the balance of this. Abraham went to Egypt during a famine. He almost gave away his wife. Lot goes to Sodom because it looks like a great place. He lost his wife and he almost lost everything. The, the sons of Jacob leave the promised land in a time of desperation and famine. They go to Egypt. Boy, that seems to work at first, doesn't it? But they end up as slaves. And This is the same kind of pattern we're going to see. David decides to go to the Philistines, get relief from Saul. It seems to work at least at first. But any time we go to ungodly places, we try and find salvation from ungodly people, it will always backfire and leave us trapped in the end. That's not just true of David in this chapter, but isn't it true of our lives as well? Do you ever get under stress? Do you ever find yourself under pressure? And to find relief, you go to an ungodly place, you hang out with ungodly people, And at first you think you're happy. And about a month or two months later, you think, boy, that was a bitter pill to swallow. I should have never gone there. I should have never done that. You know, how many people say, I'm under stress. I'm going to turn to the bottle. The bottle's going to help me in this moment. And at first the bottle helps you until the bottle has you. You will not find rescue from our troubles, from our trials, from our difficulties in life, any place outside of God. He's the only one who can rescue us from all of our troubles. The story continues. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Ah, David finally gets rest. It looks like it's going to work. Until he finds out there's a price to pay for deciding to be in charge of your life instead of letting God be in charge. And here's the first thing we see. I will try to justify my sinful choices by pointing out the positive outcomes of my bad decisions. Verse 5. And David said to Achish, Well, if I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So David is uh, apparently living with Achish in the city of Gath. Gath is not a huge city. It's still a Philistine royal city. But remember, David has around 2,000 to 3,000 people. That is a lot of mouths to feed in this city. David and Achish seem to be getting along well. And David says, why don't I have, just give me like some country city away from here where we can be with our families seems reasonable, you know, will be less burden on you in the capital city and there'll be some payment that way that David and his men receive because they're apparently going to be fighting for the Philistines and fighting with the Philistines. So give us, you know, a place to call our own. Seems very reasonable. And then we read this. So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, Ziklag is uh, a location that biblical scholars are not 100% certain on, but I can at least show you what they think. They believe it's a location that is 25 miles south of the city of Gath. I'll show you on a map there. Oh, it's up already. That shows you where Gath is and then where Ziklag is. Today, if you were to go look at that location, there's not really much to it. It sort of looks like that. It's just a, a, a big hill at this point. Now, I don't know if Achish just volunteered Ziklag, but I suspect not. I suspect that David requested Ziklag. Now, why would he have requested it? As a city, it was located on the border between Israelite territory and Philistine territory. And in Joshua chapter 15, verse 31, we discover that Ziklag when Moses divided up the promised land, was actually given to the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah was supposed to conquer that city and take that city. But up to this point, they had not done this. So David is sort of saying, "Hmm, I'm going to work like a little double agent. Get his strategy. He's pretending to be loyal to Achish and the Philistines, But underneath, he's actually trying to work for Israelite advantage. He's able to get this city from the Philistines and it's actually going to be brought into Israelite territory and David doesn't have to lift a finger to fight for it. He's got a little strategy here. On one sense, he's for the Philistines and in another sense, he's working for God. At least he thinks he is. You know, the problem with the running like a double agent, is eventually you're going to get caught. In this fact, the uh, writer, the biblical writer wants us to know this. He says right here, therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. This is how that territory was brought into the, Israelite, into the Israelites. So David is running as a double agent. Now it says, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Not a long time, but as we'll see, it's a long enough time for David to get himself in a heap of trouble, as we'll see as we get to the end. The next thing we see that happens when David wanders from God, he doesn't just try to justify his sinful actions by talking about the positive outcomes he's tried to generate with it. I will become increasingly selfish and deceptive. We read, Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites and the Amalekites. Well, who are these people? David is well known for his exceptional military ability. We don't know the location of all of these people. We do know some of these people. These were people that were in the land around the city of Ziklag. In fact, we also know this about these people groups. It continues in verse 8. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as shore to the land of Egypt. Egypt. David and his men were actually attacking the people groups that Moses had originally commanded the Israelites to wipe out in the promised land, but the Israelites had not got around to do it. So you sort of see David is running the razor's edge. I'm hiding and working for the Philistines, but I'm actually conquering a city bloodlessly, I'm going to bring into Israelite territory. I'm actually now wiping out people groups that Moses originally wanted wiped out. So it looks like I'm trying to do the right thing even though I made a wrong decision. David is trying to sort of justify his disobedience. Now, um, it continues. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkey, and the camels and the garments and come back to Akish. David knows that dead men tell no tales. So whenever he attacks one of these people groups, he wipes out every last person. So when he brings all the booty back to Akish, there's nobody to tell him the truth about where it came from. David is becoming very ruthless David, to save himself, is going to become very deceptive. His character is beginning to change. You notice that? (coughs) And when Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Oh, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jermelites, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. (coughs) David is just flat out lying. He says he is raiding Israelite territory and bringing back Israelite stuff. He's not doing that at all. He's raiding the local people groups around him, killing everybody who was there and then bringing back their stuff. When you save yourself and you do it your own way, you're going to have to become a ruthless person. You're going to have to become a deceptive person. Boy, is this a change in David's character from the last chapter, isn't it? The last chapter, courageous man, godly man. Now he's turned his back on God. He's ruthless. He's a liar. And he's deceptive. You see what trying to save yourself can do to yourself? And Then it reinforces that idea in verse 11. David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath thinking, lest they should tell us and say, David has done. And then it also says, such was the custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. He didn't just do this once. He did this consistently for a year and a half. A ruthless man, killing everybody, living a lie, deceiving people. And then verse 12, And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he will always be my servant. Now, Achish, the king of the Philistines, trusts David, but it's because David is a complete and total liar. Instead of a godly man, he is a deceptive man and a a ruthless man. Now, in one sense... I think David is admirable. In this sense, how many people could pull off a charade like this? A year and a half of deception. A year and a half of the Achish, the king of Gath, thinking he's a hero. A year and a half of feeding his own people. A year and a half of peace from running from Saul. All these things, but to do it, he's trusting in himself, And to do it, he's living a lie. To do it, he's become a ruthless, brutal man. Now, his plan's to save himself. Seems like it's working, at least at first. Remember I told you what always happens? When you're trying to save yourself, eventually you'll back yourself into a corner where you're trapped. And you can't save yourself anymore. And at that point, the only one who can save you is God. And that's exactly what happens to David next. Point four, I will end up trapped by my sin. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, gulp. Very well, uh, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I'm going to make you my bodyguard for life. Wait a minute, this worked too well. Now Achish wants David to join him in going to war against the Israelites. This idea of working as a double agent, of really trying to promote Israelite interests while pretending to work with Achish. You cannot do that when you are on the front lines of a battle. David is trapped. David is found out. He doesn't know what he is going to do at this point. Well, the chapter leaves on a cliffhanger. You're going to have to wait actually two weeks to find out what happens. But I'll tell you this. God is the only one who can save him from the mess he has made by trusting in himself instead of trusting in God. Next week, uh, the chapter goes back to Saul. And actually, Saul sort of does Halloween because Saul dresses up in a costume and he go visit, goes to visit a witch. Now, what are the applications we want to take away from this? Well, there's the applications we looked at as we worked through it, that when we wander from God, Number one, we'll try to justify our sinful choices by putting out positive outcomes that have made with our sinful decisions. Number two, we'll become increasingly selfish and deceptive when we try to save ourselves with our lives. Our character changes when we're not trusting in God, but we're trusting in ourself. And number three, we'll always end up trapped in sin from a place where, we're, where we cannot escape and the only one who can rescue us from sin, and that is God. So ultimately, we have to turn to him for escape. Some other things I point out to you that we covered along the way. When I wander from God, it will lead me to places I do not want to go and I will end up doing things I didn't want to do. Anybody else give an amen to that? Oh yeah. Can you see what happened to David? He's a murderer. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And the last chapter, he was a hero. Wandering from God is a dead-end road. Number two, if I fill my mind with negative self-talk, I will eventually believe it, and I will eventually live it. Folks, the only way to change that is we have to fill our minds with the truth of what God has done for us and how good God has been to us through Jesus We can't be like David, a busy businessman who focuses on problems all day and never takes time to look at how good God has been to him. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're somebody who's here who's in one of those negative spots where you're filling your mind with negative self-talk. And you can see all the things you constantly do wrong. Sometimes I get in those spots, folks. I honestly do. Let me tell you how I found the way of escape. Number one, when I get into those times of negative self-talk, I have to open my Bible. I have to open it. I have to start reading it. Sometimes it's one chapter, sometimes it's two, sometimes it's more. I have to start reading the Bible and seeing God's Word and seeing how good God has been to us. The second thing I have to do is I have to pray in journal. And the reason I say pray in journal is because if I just pray, I don't know about you, but my mind wanders. Like I'll start out praying and five minutes later I'm thinking about a football game. So what I do is I journal. I write my prayers out to God because that helps keep my mind organized and keep me focused. And this is what's always happened in my journals when I'm going through one of those really dark, depressing spots. I start out pouring out my heart to God and all the things that I've done wrong. And usually by the end of the page or by the end of the second page or by the end of the third page, I end up, leaving it at God's hands, leaving it at his feet and saying, God, you have been good to me and I'm just going to trust you and leave it there. That has been extremely helpful. The third thing that is very helpful for me when I find myself struggling with negative self-talk is I need to be around good and godly people that I respect. Like one of those is my wife. I'm very blessed with a wonderful wife. I can start with those negative self-talk and she has that little, like that, that zinger moment you know, I'll be saying something, you say, well, you know, it could be worse. <clears throat> and sort of like snap me out of it. You could be in Ukraine right now. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I could. Thank you, honey. Uh, the other thing is I have a great life group. I mean, our life group, we meet. We meet every other week and we talk about what's going on in our lives and we pray together. And I hear the, the questions and the difficulties other people are going through and they challenge me. And boy, I need my life group. So much appreciate them. The other thing I have in my life is I have an Ironman group. Um, An Ironman group is, we're just four guys. We get together on Wednesday at like 6.15 in my office and we hold each other accountable for memorizing one memory verse of our choosing during the week and hold each other accountable to say that we're going to keep our finger in the text. We're having our Bible study. And then we share with what's going on with each other and we pray for one another. Those guys are great because those guys always help me when I start to feel down they always seem to be be able to turn me back to God's Word. And I hope you guys have some kind of people in your life who are godly people, who can help you when you get into that negative funk. Hopefully you're in a life group. If you're not in a life group, talk to me after the service, or talk to somebody in in church leadership, if you know them, after the service. We need those people in our life, because if we are all by ourselves and we get into those negative funks, we could end up doing just like David did. Another thought with you. No matter how clearly I manage my lies, I will always regret where they lead. You want to find a good memory verse? Here's a good one. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. Easy reference to memorize right there. What Paul is saying is that when it comes to sin, it doesn't matter if people find out your sin, Your sin will always find you out in the end. Sin has inside of it Um, payment and punishment built into it. You can try to manage it. You can try and control it like David has been doing. You can try and make it work for you, but it always will find you out in the end. It'll always end up trapping you. And the only one who can save us from sin not just eternally, but temporally, even when it traps us, is our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Last thing I want to point out, uh, don't be guilty of Bible character hero worship. The only perfect person in the Bible is Jesus. Take comfort in the fact that no Bible character is perfect. All of them, including David, as we see in this chapter, had massive failures. But here's what I love. God still forgave them, loved them, and used them for his God, good purposes. Just like he offers to forgive, love, and use me when I turn back to him through Jesus Christ. I don't know what your life is like. Maybe you started out like David. You started out pretty well when you and were younger. You were heading in the right direction. But then you were like David in this chapter. Instead of trusting in God for direction in your life, you started to trust in yourself. You started to rely on your own plans. You started to rely on your own wisdom. And you became a more sinful person. You became a more deceptive person. You became a darker person until you found yourself trapped in the corner of your sin. The good news, folks is that when we call out to God and ask for forgiveness of our sin for Jesus Christ, He will forgive you. He will restore you. He will keep using you. And we're going to see that's exactly what happens for David in two chapters from now. My friends, that is our hope. That our Savior will still restore us and still use us, even after we've blown it big time, like David in this chapter. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, why this chapter is hard to read, in one sense it's encouraging to read, because David isn't perfect anymore. David really blew it. Thank you that just as you will forgive him and you will restore him when he turns back to you, that you forgive us And you will restore us and use us when we turn back to you as well. Oh, we desperately need your never-ending grace. Because our hearts seem to be filled with never-ending sin. Thank you for your amazing grace that you offer to sinners like us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.